0: Welcome to Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri, the Canberra region, for Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Naam, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. Today on Earth Matters, we continue the Women's Climate Congress conversation about the implications of the recent legal win, stopping a new mega-thermal coal mine on the Bimblebox Nature Reserve on Wangang and Jangalingu country in the Galilee Basin. Firstly, here's Patricia Julian, the Secretary for the Bimblebox Alliance, talking about the ecology of Bimblebox that offsets can never replace.
1: Patricia, and why the Bimble Box Alliance, you know, what you've been doing and
2: what you're protecting. Okay, thanks. Around 2000, there was a lot of land clearing going on, especially trees, clearing of trees for grazing purposes in the Jericho sub-bio region of the desert uplands. And a property called Glen Innes was up for sale and people who were concerned about the loss of biodiversity in the region knew it was in excellent condition and tried to raise funds to buy the property. They were pointed in the direction of the National Reserve System for protected areas and the Commonwealth Government had funding and the the government provided about two-thirds of the funding to buy the property on the condition that it be made a nature refuge and also on the condition that it be managed to a basically world-class standard, which was an IUCN Category 4. Most of the nature refuges in Queensland, which are privately owned, are managed to a, an IUCN Class 6, which is not as stringent as a Class 4. So what that actually essentially did was uh, mean for the last or well, 20-odd years, it's been very carefully managed by Ian Hock, Paolo Cassoni's partner, And it's uh, turned out to be in the best condition in the desert uplands. It's been recognised as being in excellent conditions for its environmental values. Most of the property, about ninety-seven percent, had never been cleared, so that helped as well. When they learned it was going to be mined in two thousand and seven, the exploration found coal there. Paula started a campaign. She gathered a lot of supporters. And over time, they grew and grew and grew. And we had a lobbying campaign. We did everything we could think of to bring attention to social media, web page, newsletters, videos, whatever we could do, fundraise as well to try and, and address the issue. Because protected areas under the National Reserve System, they're supposed to be permanently protected. They're not really supposed to be mined although the legislation allows for mining, but only on the condition that you don't harm the values for which the nature refuge was created. Now, when it was gazetted as a nature refuge, that meant that all of the values, all of the environmental and cultural values within the nature refuge were protected. So if you were going to try and mine it, you'd have to find an offset that would match or be even better than those values. And that turned out not to be the case. It came out in the court case with expert witnesses that, uh, no, they couldn't find a match. Now, that was a bloody hard job, uh, <laughs> digging into that and finding that information, a lot of work by a lot of people, a lot of effort, ongoing surveys by experts in their field of the flora and fauna, found over 650 of flora and fauna species Everything we could do, species of high conservation significance for that nature refuge, we had most of them there for the bioregion. So there was plenty of evidence, and it was accepted by the court and even the opposition that, um, yes, it was in excellent condition and it would be hard to find a match. And that was one of the reasons that the judge decided that the offset probably didn't exist. Oh, I'd like to mention also in 2014, the Coordinator General for Queensland, who looks at these large-scale developments in around December of that 2013, said, oh, it's going to be uh, approved as a mining project. It's gone through the EIS assessment and it's going to be mined and there will be an offset at the time, but they never did get it, of course. Following that, a very pretty much... Exhausted but enraged, Paula decided that we would form the Bimblebox Alliance, and uh, we quickly gathered a lot of support for that. Uh, it's totally volunteers, all of us, even the management committee. The goal was to have permanent protection of environmental and cultural values of nature refuges and other protected areas in Australia, and within the reserve system of protected areas. Now the the Reserve System of Protected Areas is governed by the Convention on Biological Diversity, and uh, that's an international convention. So if you can't find an offset, because uh, legally they had they brought in offsets in Queensland after that, if you can't find an offset, then you're in violation of that, that uh, Convention on Biological Diversity. So it was really a no-brainer that really this mine should not proceed. So that gives you some background on it.
0: Patricia Julian, the secretary for the Bimblebox Alliance, and now Alison Rose from the Environmental Defenders Office, in conversation with First Nation woman Marawa Johnson and Lala Gutchen about the impacts of the Bimblebox win. Lala Gutchen is an Arab Murram woman from the Arab Island, Zenadeth Kes. That's the Torres Straits, where the rising seas are eating away at her villages and sacred sites. She was one of the witnesses in the case against the Waratah mine. In a historic first, Lala gave evidence on country in accordance with traditional protocols. Marawa Johnson is the First Nations Program Lead for Youth Verdict. She is a wordy woman from north and central Queensland. Marawa also has ties to the Kangaloo, Gulili, Iman, Mununjali and Bigambul peoples. She holds ties to the Wangang and Jangalingu, and has worked on Aboriginal rights litigation in the Federal Court and Supreme Court of Australia.
1: I think the the role and the impact on the work that we're all doing as well, kind of moving forward for us, it's sort of the legal impact and that's reasonably obvious. It makes it a lot easier for us now to to assist clients to run really good sound objections. And also potentially to support our clients to challenge coal mining approvals at a federal level as well. So it is very significant in that respect. A lot of the reasoning can be equally applied to any coal mine. The client science and substitution reasoning and the decision around that, that scope three impacts can be considered <laughs> and that they also are a factor that weighs against the a mine being approved because it's not in the public interest is really significant, I think. And in Queensland, the fact that the burning of coal anywhere in the world does have a material impact on climate change because of the remaining carbon budget. So it's a material component of that you know, amount of coal that's left or the emissions that can be burnt as part of that carbon budget, which I think is really significant. So those aspects are really key. And of course, on offsets as well. And the offsets aspect of it, I think, was a key target of the strategy because often offsets are used to, you know, to justify the complete destruction of an area and those offsets are never realized. And so there isn't really any of a net net gain. And so the offsets expert, Professor Martine Marron, did a fantastic job of breaking down illogicality of offsets program and debunking a lot of the myths um, because she is the essentially the world's leading expert on offsets and so it was an incredible opportunity to educate the court about a huge number of things including first nations rights and culture climate impacts and the substitution argument and you know uh, a lot of the evidence on climate was actually agreed to, I should, should add. So Waratah's own experts were agreed with our experts in a lot of very key elements. So they agreed that the offsets, for example, for Bimblebox were manifestly inadequate, which is an incredible concession from a mining offsets expert. And they also agreed that if the coal was dug up and then burnt overseas or anywhere in the world, that it would contribute to climate change impacts and the climate change impacts that we were saying, including the rights on First Nations people. Their argument, though, was that it didn't really matter because the land court wasn't able to consider that. It wasn't a relevant consideration because the land court's job isn't to determine what people do overseas. And in any event, even if it could, Another mine somewhere else would just produce that coal, and so there would be no net benefit if the mine wasn't approved. And ultimately, the judge found that that was not correct, <laughs> um, and it was that was based on their evidence because they were Waratah was unable to provide the court with evidence that there would be perfect substitution or that there was even a likelihood of substitution, perfect substitution. Their expert, who works for Wood Mackenzie, is one of the leading coal market modelers in Australia and advisors, their own expert from Wood Mackenzie, agreed that if the coal from the mine was burnt and if some perfect substitution did exist in the market, then we would actually be in a world of 2.7 degrees of warming at least, and potentially up to eight and a half degrees. So for their hypothesis to hold true, that perfect substitution, the market could perfectly substitute the coal, you know, we would be in a world of 2.7 degrees, and they agreed with that. So that was incredibly significant. And some of those concessions led to, I guess, the ultimate decision and that President Kingham was very careful, the land court was very careful at ensuring that no. One aspect of her decision was determinative, but it was all of those things together. But in any event, it was, you know, it could be one, but even without it, it would still be her decision based on the um, balance of the evidence. So it was sort of, I guess, all of the evidence, the bulk of the evidence that led to the land Court deciding that it was not in the public interest to recommend her approval of the mine. But I think you could... Think of it as a concept of, of like it was refused on its direct impacts, um, so the impacts on, um, you know, the Bimblebox Box Nature Refuge and the local area and then also the indirect impacts, the climate change impacts, and that was also how the case was really developed from a legal sense and a scientific perspective. But, yeah, it'd be great. Now, Marua and Lala could speak to... The impact that I'm really interested in, I guess, is the impact that you see the case may have on your work moving forward in protecting country, Lala, and on your community and the way that you explain, I guess, impacts and your work in protecting, you know, your culture and country. And Marla, I guess, in the work that you're doing to really raise the profile of all of the work that you do. But I think it's better if you explain that. <laughs> I I try to paraphrase it. Marwa, perhaps would you like to go first? Or?
3: Yeah, obviously. So, First Nations justice, I think, is the determining factor in, and that's globally, the determining factor in whether we actually can, we have the, the necessary drastic shift in our attitudes, values, and beliefs in the spirit of protection of our collective future.
0: Marwa Johnson. You're with Earth Matters, bringing you environment and social justice stories broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Cross these First Nations lands that were never ceded. I'm Bec Horridge. Now, back to hearing Marawa Johnson, a weirdy woman from north and central Queensland. Marawa leads the First Nations program for Youth Verdict, talking about the win not to put a coal mine on the Bimblebox Nature Reserve
3: government policies that have worked to dispossess First Nations people not just of our land and our families but also of our traditional ownership our responsibility and duty to make decisions about country which is the first environmental law and so in terms of uh, my hopes with what maybe some other yeah impacts of this case will be is that other First Nations people I guess can find confidence hopefully in the fact that there are um, I guess the legal system in terms of objecting to a mining application hopefully it's made a little bit easier in terms of them being able to give evidence and having that evidence done on country and concurrently so it's not necessarily going against our protocols and what's appropriate about who holds knowledge and who can share knowledge but if it can be done in a group then you know there's more support from the people but also it's more true uh, a representation of the people as well and hopefully you know we were prepared to go to the high court I think that there's We'll see what happens in the future because while the legal sort of process for this particular case is done now with Clive Palmer and was withdrawing their appeal, there's a lot more that needs to happen, so stand by. Thanks, Mara. Lala, would you mind speaking to, um, I guess, the impact that the case may have
4: had on your work? Well, like for me as a First Nation person, it was really good to actually... Challenge the court with First Nation people rights so they could know like we have rights as First Nation people. And like for me, through my kinship and protocols and ancestral rights, we we have the obligation to care for country, whether it's on black and white or what, but it's part of our cultural practices. So talking about country, caring for country, it's a right that we can't push aside from us. It's at the forefront for us. So like for me, as with this with this KCB opened my mind so much in continuing on, like especially going against something that will contribute to destroying my rights where I have an obligation to like care for country. So for me, like for going forward and stuff is like as Mara was saying. Be ready for it. Like, if there's something come up, um, I, will, I will keep on going. Like, because um, in the end, my parents won't be here, I won't be here. So, it's passing on the knowledge onto my daughter. So, they will continue the fight to care for country and for our culture, especially our culture, like our cultural identity. Um, I work as a language worker and I've been battling two ways. So, I'm trying to revive my first language. And I'm copying climate change at the same time. So it's a two-way street for me. And um, doing anything that will reduce the risk of destroying my cultural identity is everything that we will take on board. Like when I first um, told my parents that I will be giving evidence for a very big court case that will object a, a coal mine application, my father encouraged me and said, I will put evidence too as well to support because we've seen the changes over the years and now you've witnessed the changes and then we'll go on to your daughter, to your descendants. So me as a First Nation person, I have the right to care for my country. And when I'm gone, it's for the next person. It's an ongoing fight for us. So like Maro was saying, when we got the decision in November, they filed for an appeal to the Supreme Court We wasn't worried because we knew that we outrun them in the first round. So we were going for the second. And when they, you know, withdraw from the court case, it was a happy moment for the community too as well. I've got a lot of good feedback from my people from all around Torres Strait, especially my Aboriginal family on the mainland. They've thanked me and others. So it's a continuous fight for us as First Nation people. So, yeah. That's actually a little bit related, Lala, to a question that's come in on line here from Kasaya. Are there any unique challenges or opportunities you faced as a youth advocate specifically? Yeah, I faced a lot of it as a woman because yeah. I come speaking from a fisherman perspective. I gave most of my evidence on sea country. I practiced a lot of um, navigation and moon tides and those who were affected in the last 10 years of fishing. So I've been, you know, talked into using a sound or GPS to, you know, be an alternative thing if my cultural practices can't work, but I've refused to do that because it's my way of my people way of knowing when to fish and when to hunt. So um I've been challenged a lot as a woman, but um I've been known in my community to be a strong fisherman and a cultural person. And these are all knowledge that were passed on from my father onto me and to my siblings. And I took on that role. And that's why I could give evidence in court to say that my sea country has been affected with coral bleaching, dying coral, and the fish moved on. And we fish at different tides now. So that was the main one and my others were based on gardening. So we do a lot of gardening. Those were the, you know, things that I've, cha- like, got asked why I talk about it. But it's, it is really important because we still live off the land and the sea. Even though we were, um, you know, people civilized, now they wear clothes and stuff. Our cultural practices is still practiced within our community and our people, our tribes still hold on to it. So that was one of the things i faced as a young mother i'm a mother of one daughter so i got asked why do you care i said i do care because that's what i was that's what i was born into this world for i have that job to do so yeah right now i know it's going to be an ongoing um challenge for me because i've reached the age now that i'm in my 30s and i have younger women behind me that are following my footstep and all the women's before me, they have carried on what we've done in the last few years and they're willing to take that stand together with us women to continue the fight. Yeah. Thank
2: you.
1: Thank you, Lala. So, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> Mara, would you like to talk to, and perhaps speak to like the role of women as well, in perhaps in youth and right? some of the work now as a result of sort of the casework? Yeah, the role of women in Youth Verdict, I think, and and the role that you see sort of for women moving forward too and the work that you're doing.
3: Yeah, good ways. Uh, I think my journey, so I first got involved with standing up for my mob in 2014. I was 19 at the time. And um, a lot of, I think, my personal challenges have been that, I come from a patriarchal law system, but it's not necessarily our law that's the problem. I think it's the colonial subversion of it that creates a you know male superiority complex. And so every step of the way, I think, get in where you can fit in. And so um, no disrespect to women. Um, but the colonial apparatus is pervasive, and where we have patriarchal law that doesn 't necessarily mean that men sit on top or there 's an equality between the genders. It just means that our who we are so our place within our our society we get it so we follow a skin skin law like kinship system uh made up of four parts, and you get your skin. So who you are within the group, who you're related to, who you can marry, who you can speak to, what you eat, what you don't eat, every single aspect of your life, essentially where you're born, like which part of country you're born in, where you're buried, can dance at your funeral. Everything is dictated by this skin system, where, who you are, who your parents are. And so for us, it works that we get it from, we're told who we are, by we're the same as our father's father. And a lot of the time, I think, where there are First Nations law systems like that, unfortunately, being on the East Coast, we, yeah, there has been a lot of, I guess, yeah, colonial, yeah, (laughs) um, sort of twisting of what it actually means to have patriarchal law. And so I've always been outspoken and... I'm one of, you know, 20 children. I have nine sisters, but very even. But also it's too often, I think, standing up for country has is really has been designated for men. Whereas for us, you know, the whole skin group, there's a whole skin group, my skin group that are the warriors. And so it's not just the men, it's the women in that skin group too. But um, unfortunately, we've forgotten that. I think doing this work for me, I think women are always leading the fight. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change, but also equalising the role of men and women and also bringing it back to the fact that we're the very, you know, for the most part, sorry, not to be too binary or exclusionary. But yeah, we bear children And so really the womb is the first country. And so it's through our women standing up that our children learn to stand up for country. It's where they get their first country. And so, yeah, that's me.
0: Marawa leads the First Nations Programme for Youth Verdict, talking about the win not to put a coal mine on the Bimblebox Nature Reserve. Thank you to the Women's Climate Congress... Lala Guchin, Morawa Johnson, Patricia Julian, and Alison Rose for today's episode of Earth Matters. Find more Women's Climate Congress events at their website, womensclimatecongress.com. You've been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced for Radio 3CR in Melbourne on Wiradjuri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Federation for their generous financial support. And if you'd like to get in touch with Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page on Earth Matters 3CR Radio. Or follow us on Twitter at EarthM Radio. If you'd like to listen to or share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au Earth Matters. The Earth Matters team will be back next week with more environmental and social justice stories from all over this beautiful blue planet. I'm Beck Horridge. And now, Arca by Brad Barr, his Prada album.